0: Listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hi, Jim. Welcome back. And look, we've got proper English summer weather now. It's cold and wet and grey, and it's raining.
1: I know, isn't it fantastic? We've had such a glorious spell of really baking weather, in fact, you know, unusually bakingly hot weather. And, uh, and now we're sheltering in a car uh, outside Eberneau Church uh, in pouring rain, um, waiting to do an outside broadcast. But uh, So what do you think about this weather, Amanda? I mean, do you think it's uh, unusual? Should we be worried?
0: I think we should be really concerned actually and I know everyone loves the sunshine and I know we all love to laze about on deck chairs in our gardens but you just have to look around at what's happening in the English countryside. Scorched fields, um, withering crops, uh, anxiety from our farmers about how small the yield's going to be this year, how the price of everything's going to go up. But it's a much bigger symptom isn't it it's a signal that actually our climate is changing and if anybody needed some evidence that we need to do something about climate change i would have said the last seven eight weeks of scorching temperatures is probably that
1: yeah i think i I would agree with you and i think the concern for me is the extremes of weather so you know here we are right it's not it's not absolutely it's not a deluge but it's raining quite heavily but you know we have had really uh, extremely you know extremes of heat um, and I think that's what's what we're being told is that that's the sort of thing we can expect to see more and more of and I think that's the sort of thing that's going to affect people That you know swinging from uh, you know from 40 plus degrees C temperatures in the UK uh, to you know to flood like conditions um, I think that's going to be the real concern for, for, for a lot of people
0: it's a concern for everyone I mean even if you only have a small plot I mean just thinking about it on a domestic level you know your garden's really suffered, but now it's absolutely sheeting down out there, and most of this rainwater will run off. Yeah. You know there's flooding on the roads. Our drainage system can't cope. Um, we're not collecting the rainwater properly. We're really going from one extreme to the other, and and that's the kind, the worst kind of climate for growing things. And Looking after wildlife. I mean, there's some of the sh- stories I was reading over the summer about birds jumping out of their nests because it was so hot for the birds who were nesting mm-hmm. you know, under the eaves, yeah. and you know a lot of our wildlife is really going to suffer as well. So, so this is a. I think this is probably a wake-up call. Yeah, um, yeah. something we should be doing something about. Though I have to say, I would rather it
1: wasn't raining today. <laughs> no, well, particularly given that we're going to be uh, we're going to be talking about rewilding, and part of that is, uh, is actually getting out into the wild, I guess. But uh, but before we come on to that, there's, I, I, there's something I read recently which actually also concerned me, and it's it's linked to climate change. Is the fact that we're now not only are we entering probably in the next four or five years, we might expect similar sort of temperatures in the UK that we have had this summer. But also that we're, you know, what's happening is sort of, um, if you like, a positive uh, feedback loop where uh, the things which normally control the the the, 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 uh, the heat um, and the control the weather are being. Um, Added to and some of the some of the impacts that we're, that are being created by higher temperatures uh, are just adding to the fact that it's going to be even even hotter temperatures. So the release of, sort of methane from seabeds and the inability of the sea to absorb um, uh, you know, what to act as a heat sink as well as a CO two sink. So all of those sorts of things are a little bit depressing, aren't they? Really. So um,
0: yeah, they are depressing. And I think that what you've just said is quite interesting, isn't it? That's about um, we've distorted the balance so that the planet can't cope with this kind of weather because because there's so much other, you know, climate change-factoring gases and, and and impacts. So perhaps you know, 100, 200 years ago we'd have been able to cope Mm. with um, an extreme of heat followed by an extreme of wet because there would have been mitigating factors built into the ecosystem um, and ways of managing it. And those are really under strain now. Mm. And that probably is why rewilding is so important. Yes. Because actually that's about trying to restore the ecological natural balance and allow our our planet to recover when there are extremes, but also to cope better with the the fluctuations and, and the needs of... Of of all of the creatures that live on the planet, not just us humans, but but more importantly animals and plants and insects.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. It's going to be a really interesting discussion. I'd like to. I I know a little bit about the the concept. I guess I think I know a little bit about the concept, but I don't know the details. So it's going to be really interesting to find out more about rewilding um and i just think it'll be it'll be great because well, we've had a break over the summer um i hope uh, you know people are still uh, keen to, to tune in i'm sure we you know we, one or two people might have wondered where we've gone to but i guess everybody needs a break but we have some fantastic um guests on our podcast. we've been very fortunate to have some really interesting subjects um and i think today's going to be uh, you know the, another one of those It's an outside broadcast so everybody who's listening will have to excuse the patter of rain or the uh, you know, perhaps even a few bird calls, that might be quite nice, mightn't it, if we hear a spotted woodpecker or, or uh, one or two other other things?
0: Well, if the rain stops for long enough for us <laughs> to be able to hear anything, that would be a joy. Um, this is a particularly exciting broadcast because it's the first of three that we're going to be doing about rewilding because it's such an enormous subject. And I think what I've learned over the um, last few months of doing the pod is that every time we have a broadcast, it immediately um, provokes a conversation to have another one. So people want to hear more about what we've been talking about and we want to talk to more guests and in more depth um, on the themes that we've been discussing. So we're thinking of, of uh, refocusing the podcasts a bit, so we actually have perhaps more in-depth conversations about subjects, but then also have follow-up podcasts as pod specials and also as second second editions. So this is the first of three, and as you say, we're outside, or we hope to be outside, um, and we're actually going to be in the Sussex Wildlife Trust's Eberneau Common, which is a fabulous area of nature reserve um, which they've been looking after for about 30 years, so we're actually going to be outside talking to the experts and having um, we hope a look around at some of the rewilding in action
1: Yep, so uh, so we'll, uh, we'll shortly be getting out of the car, um, probably donning our, our waterproofs I suspect and uh, we might even go and take sanctuary in the, the church, which is a beautiful church uh, anybody that doesn't know this area I would certainly recommend getting yourself out to Eberneau and the nearby Lurgeshall and everything around here. It's a fantastic, fantastic place just to take a walk, take a cycle and just get out and enjoy the wild I guess and, uh, and, and understand Bring your wellies. Bring your wellies, yes, certainly today and perhaps an umbrella as well.
0: Well, we're very lucky today because we've got four really um, well-informed and experienced rewilding folk, Um, uh, Tony Whitbread, who was formerly at the Sussex Wildlife Trust, and Simon Boyle from Argyle Environmental, Katie Purchase, who's been studying for a master's and is a bit of an expert around apex predators, and Helen Craddock, who has a background in countryside management. So we've left the shelter of the car and we've escaped out into the wild. And actually, at the moment, we're, we've taken shelter under the porch of Eberneau Church, which is a beautiful little church right here on the edge of Ebono Common. And um, first up, our guests are um, all here. But I'm going to be talking to Tony Whitbread first, who used to be chief executive of the Sussex Wildlife Trust. And as he says in his own words, still works there but no longer gets paid. So now he's segued into being a volunteer. So Tony, thanks very much for joining us and welcome. Thank you. And our podcast today is really special because we've come out here to Ebenau, which is an amazing um, rewilding site. And I'm going to ask Tony to talk a little bit about it, but I'm particularly fascinated because what you're doing here is reintroducing grazing and of course a long time ago under the original charter of the forest over 800 years ago grazing cattle and pigs particularly pannage, would have been a right of most um, local people so commoners in the truest sense of the word would have been able to graze their cattle and their pigs in amongst the um, woods and trees and the reason that you've reintroduced grazing here is to try and recreate some of that um, natural environment isn't it but Tony, can you just tell us a little bit about what Ebono is and how long you've looked after it and what we could see if it weren't raining?
2: Right, well hopefully we'll have a look round soon but here, here we are on the edge of Ebono Common which is about I think 80 hectares in size, something like that. We've owned it for over 30 years. It used to be a pasture woodland or a wood pasture so as, as you say it's some, something where... There's a lot of woodland, but there was also rights to cut wood and graze animals in different, different sorts of ways. So it's a kind of traditional sort of management. Um, but we're now bringing back that sort of management much more with the idea of, a, of, as you say, a rewilding perspective. So it's not necessarily from the perspective of a um, kind of past culture of a, of a particular economic structure. It's more thinking about, well, what natural processes led to what's here and how can we bring those natural processes back again, which is actually the nub of rewilding. So we understand, well, what does pasture woodland look like? How does it work? How, what is, how does it function? What do we therefore need to do to make it function? And uh, can we learn from it? Can we look at the species that are here? Can we learn at how we can maintain or enhance those species? So basically, Eben Common is a wood pasture which is turning into a very small-scale kind of rewilding experiment.
0: That is exciting. Now. Lots of people probably would have heard about rewilding, but I suspect in the context of, of um, maybe reintroducing wolves to Scotland, which has had a lot of coverage in the, in the media recently and is hugely controversial, but it's actually quite a complex idea, isn't it? Can you maybe just sketch out for people who are listening what rewilding means and what it is?
2: Yes, certainly. It's, it, it is actually a spectrum of activities and I tend to think of it as, well, it's the restoration of natural processes. It's trying to get more nature, trying to get nature to function for itself. The next question should be, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do we mean by natural processes? And it's not simply leaving things alone, because we haven't necessarily got all those natural processes in place. So on the one hand, it's you, you could argue that it's the juxtaposition of two main forces. On the one hand, you've got succession, which is the tendency for trees to grow and form dense woodland. And on the other hand, you've got natural disturbance, which is the tendency to open up that, that canopy. So those two things working in opposition essentially the two main groups of natural processes that we need to get functioning now with Ebenau common it was a very open sort of woodland um, that's most of the species here require open sort of canopy woodland so how do you get those natural processes working so you get a natural balance and natural dynamics a natural moving kaleidoscope of those sorts of habitats
0: and how does having grazing cattle in this case um, actually open up the woodland how does that work
2: in- interesting yes I mean it, it's partially open already and to some extent the cattle maintain openness and can expand it, reduce the amount of regeneration of trees for example. We use very low intensity grazing, the idea being not to stop regeneration altogether but to try to encourage that matrix of of habitats. So the cattle uh, do prevent regeneration, they eat woody growth to some extent but they're mainly grazers. In an ideal world you'd have browsers here as well but we don't have large natural browsers in the country.
0: What would a large natural browser be?
2: Something like a bison, in my dreams, one day. (laughs) Bison, roaming free
0: in West Sussex. Well, one day. (laughs) So the cattle are keeping... New trees, basically, or little sapling trees, from growing, and that's stopping the, the canopy from getting too too overcrowded, right? And too many trees. Exactly. What else is coming alongside the cattle then? Have we got species coming back? Have we got n- new animals that you weren't expecting, or new plants that you weren't expecting?
2: What's interesting here is we started off with a very a very uh, rich site. It's one of the richest, if not the richest, woodland in Sussex. So we can't really make it much better. Maintaining what's there is so important, and this is where some of the debate on rewilding is. Uh, often, when you have a very important conservation objective to keep something, you know, rich, then you have to have out, outcome, objective, focused management. With rewilding, it's sometimes better actually on on other sites where you haven't necessarily you're not necessarily starting with the best habitat. So, alongside Edmonstone Common, we have a, a new area called Butcherland, which used to be um, used to be just ordinary agriculture, and that's perhaps more a regenerative rewilding project than. Eberneau Common is, is itself. So in those areas we are seeing improvements. We're seeing turtle doves appear, we've seen uh, skylarks um, increase in numbers. So all sorts of things are happening in this, this, this new area. Evernote Common um, is doing very well indeed. It's very difficult to find much more here because it's already so rich.
0: OK. I think this is a very good moment to perhaps widen the discussion out a bit and perhaps talk about conservation and rewilding sitting alongside one another. And I'd like to um, bring in some of our other guests Simon, um, it'd be really interesting to get some of your perspectives on that because obviously this is a field you've been working in for a long time, and um, you know Tony's just touched on the what's the highest level of rewilding, which is very much around plant species and um, and obviously the trees and, and you know the undergrowth and things here at Aberno, and I'm glad to say that the rain is beginning to clear up, so we're going to go on a tramp in a minute and have a look to see what we can see. But from your perspective, the work that you're doing, can you describe about your approach to some of this difficult subject? Because rewilding isn't always seen as a benefit, is it? So what's your experience been and, and how have you come to, to the subject?
3: Well, I came, have come to the subject because I like to spend a lot of time outdoors. And so I go to places which are wild if I if I can find them. Um, and a good example of that is is Wild Ennerdale up in the northwest of the Lake District, Um where you had a a forest which was planted after the First World War, and it was planted as mono uh, species, Sitka spruce and some larch, in big blocks, so it didn't fit in with the landscape at all. Uh, it had very little in bio, for biodiversity, um, and there was a realisation over the years that this wasn't really very good for any anybody, or especially for nature. Um, and so, if you go there now, uh, this project um, started, I think, in about two thousand and four. Uh, you see a very different type of landscape. You see that the conifers are coming down. Uh, they're putting, as Tony uh, referred to, um, uh, they're putting in a cattle to churn things up, and you're getting native species of broadleaf now now going there. So you see a real difference in the landscape, and it's like it's gone from a dead landscape to, to a living landscape, and it's just a fascinating uh, and really exciting area to, to go into.
0: But is that... Um... Is that an economic um, driver? I mean, presumably planting lots of, of, of species like, you know, conifers was because people wanted to cut them down and use them for wood or because, I mean, what would have been the motivation for that? And have we had to have a shift in how we approach land and how we own land and the economics behind it to allow something like that to happen?
3: Yeah, certainly it would have been planted originally for economic reasons. I think the economics have changed and I guess the timber isn't as valuable as maybe they thought it would be. Um, But I think there's a greater recognition that we need to do a lot more for biodiversity. Yes, we need to look at the economics uh, and producing things. uh, But at the same time, we're seeing such a steady decline in our wildlife. We need to do something about it. And if we always go, no, economics come first and nature comes second, then we're not going to be left with any wildlife at all or very little. And if we look at the State of Nature report, the, the latest one, you know, introduced by David Attenborough that came out in 2016, you know we see that just about 50 percent of our, our native species are in steep decline and i just don't think that's acceptable so we need a new way of thinking about nature and our engagement with nature
0: and helen i know you're very passionate about this subject too aren't you and you you, you know you've done a lot of um, work in the field but am I right in thinking that actually um, some of the issues are actually that we're losing, we've lost so much forest. It isn't just to do with reintroducing biodiversity. It's actually because we're running out of we're running out of trees and our level of, of forest cover and our level of of woodland is very low. Um, but if we reintroduce these things, they in turn bring an economic benefit as well as an environmental benefit, don't they?
4: Yeah, I mean um, the sort of new drive for ecosystem services at the moment fits in with rewilding because we're we're trying to build more resilient landscapes that are are more joined up, looking at the Lawton principle, bigger, better, more joined up, manage the hydrology, flood management, managing rivers, like the sedimentation, all sorts of things benefit us from rewilding things and and letting natural processes go back. We don't have to intervene and manage those things if if we can let nature do what, what it should be doing.
0: And having trees presumably is helping with um, you know things like flooding as well, isn't it? I mean, planting more forests. Flood
4: management and carbon sequestration and all all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, As well as biodiversity, obviously, which in
0: itself helps things flourish. And there is an economic benefit to this as well, isn't there? Because there's um, you know bringing in bringing in new species also i mean in some ways you know um, rewilding is contributing to an increase in tourism or natural tourism you know in a sustainable way we hope not floods of people coming in huge coaches and trampling over the land but actually being able to get close to nature as you said you know what motivates you some is wanting to go out and be in an outside space isn't it so so actually be able to bring in spaces that people want to visit that are in themselves quite wild i think has a direct economic benefit very often doesn't it
5: I think not just an economic benefit, but I think one of the main problems at the moment in our like society is um, mental health. And I think the kind of bringing together people with nature would really benefit the, the mental health side of things. And also, I think there was... A I think there was a paper i read and it would really like help the nhs save a lot of money as well on these mental health so prescribing um depress- antidepressants and stuff we'd save a lot of money on that but also it would bring nature and people together and also i think education is a very key thing and rewilding would teach you know the younger generation to sustain the fu- to stay in the nature into the future not just the present
0: day yes it has huge benefits and i absolutely agree with you about the mental health benefits and the sense of well-being that's brought not just by being out in the fresh air and having exercise, but actually being close to to, to animals and trees and the natural world is, is very important, particularly important for young people as well, um, as well as those people who you know who, who are, um, want to regain their sense of, of well-being and balance. Simon, can I just turn back to you just for a minute? Because because I think that the, what's particularly interesting, isn't it, is there's lots of different types of rewilding, isn't there? I mean, Tony touched on... On the landscape around here and that's primarily around i mean i think it's around the planted landscape isn't it It's around the trees and it's around the common but there's rewilding happens in different ways and in and and there's a difference between bottom up and top down could you explain some of that for, for pod listeners
3: yeah, uh, as you say, there's, there's, uh, and as, as Tony mentioned, there's a spectrum of rewilding. I mean, rewilding. It's very basic. It could be in my, my garden. i have just let that sort of lecture take its course. I'm just going to see what happens. I don't really know what's going to happen over the years.
0: This is a good um, excuse for not cutting the grass, isn't well, it? Well, it is.
3: It is, and not having to worry about a lawnmower and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, and, and 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 it's unexpected things. You know, I saw I saw a pyramidal orchid in the in the first year I'd done it, and that was tremendously exciting. And I heard the crickets and the grasshoppers. You sort of think the gardens, but you know it's it's become alive. So you think, well, why doesn't everybody do this? But anyway, um, that's you know so there's a whole spectrum from the very smallest to to something like like Annadel that, I, that I, I, I talked about. But you're right, uh, Amanda. There's also the sort of the kind of bo-
0: that was the downside of, of sheltering in the in the church porch is that we've just had the bells toll. Sorry, I interrupted yeah. you
3: so as you say there's there's bottom up which is which is really um uh, allowing allowing the um on the trophic scale in you know, number one where you have your, your, your plants I mean, we've got experts around me who know a lot more about this but uh you know, so you're you're letting the, the the scrub move back and you're letting the, the trees naturally uh, regenerate uh and then once you've you know, you've got that you have then you get uh, the animals going in you and you know um it could be beavers in in uh, if, if there's uh, rivers, um, it could be, you know, birds of prey moving in, um, etc. Um, so that's a sort of that bottom up. And a good example of this that I've been to is the, is the Carifran project, Wildwood project in in southern Scotland. Um, and that was a Millennium project uh, where local people decided that the their local glen, um, which had about six trees in it because they were goats, nothing could regenerate. And had almost no biodiversity, well, why not just change this? So they got rid of the goats and they replanted 600,000 trees.: 600,000. And these are local people and volunteers and I think some people actually I think one checked drove up from Portsmouth or somewhere every weekend, you know just to, to replant what they think were the actual native trees that would have grown thousands of years ago, which they, they looked at the pollen um, records to, what to kind see of what trees
0: were they planting.
3: Oh, I think it was you know oak, uh, willow, all those sorts of those sorts of things, and they and they you know they had a proper plan drawn up and and they were all plotted on mm-hmm. there, and they were I think around a six hundred a six year period, they were putting in about hundred thousand trees per year to have this to, this wild wood. Now I I was there in I think it was two thousand eleven, so about seven years ago, and already you know they were fairly small trees, but they were they were doing well. But I'd love to go back there and just see how it's changed.
0: But and turns, that's an example of kind of top, what you would call a top-down the, rewilding. Project, that's
3: a, no? that that's a bottom. That's a bottom bottom up, up because you're planting the trees. Right. I mean, they could have just left it, got rid of the goats, and maybe after a hundred years, you know, they they've got the same result possibly. But this is uh, to sort of speed things up. So saying, let's try and recreate it as far as we can. Mm-hmm. As how, how it used to be there, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So that's uh, a bottom up. Now top down. I think the classic example, really, in the world is probably Yellowstone. Uh, OK, yeah, we need park. to probably
0: bring in Katie there, because this is your area of expertise, isn't it? Because this is about apex predators, is that yeah. right? And if you haven't seen it, there's a fabulous short film, which we're going to put on our pod website and link everyone to, about what happens in, in Yellowstone. And this is probably what people think of when they think of rewilding, because this is about the big, scary wolves, isn't it? This yes, is so so they're the key same species, which are sh-
5: help shaping our, the species below them, so the herbivores and then the plants... So they are known as apex predators. So they obviously they're the big wolves, the, the big tigers, the like big carnivores that eat the herbivores below them and then influence the plants. But one of the main problems I think that people are seeing with this is the human predator conflict. So they know the kind of the Red Riding Hood story where the wolf, the wolf eats the people. Do you know what I mean? And I think people need to kind of overcome that to be able to open their, their like eyes to rewilding. So one of the main limitations of it as well is the Dangerous Wild Animals Act that was made in 1976, which is obviously quite some time ago. So I feel that that, that needs to be really updated for us to be able to... Um, allow rewilding to happen with the apex predators. Okay, so dangerous.
0: So just to go back to Leatherstone, So those
5: people who don't know they introduced yeah. some wolves So yeah, they introduced the wolves and the wolves were known to have an effect on the elk number so and also the elk behavior So elk were not going to places that they knew the wolves were because they felt that they were vulnerable And then from this also beavers were introduced reintroduced and they well the will, willow was also forming from the elk not eating the willow as much and then this introduced beavers and then from there, um, other species such as birds were also notably increasing because the willow created more and more habitats just from the wolves being introduced and the elk not
0: eating as much of the willow and the.
5: So I don't know how on. many
0: wolves they introduced. I mean, I don't know. It wasn't huge numbers, was it? We... I
5: think it was like 140 to start with, but they have been declining a bit over the years and they kind of fluctuated around, kind of, since 2015, they fluctuated
0: around that 100 mark. Right. But that was enough to. to to eat the elk when they needed eating um, for old elk but also to change their their grazing patterns wasn't it so they moved to different parts of of Yellowstone. so they
5: wouldn't go to areas where they felt vulnerable where the wolves would be as well and then this this allowed the willow to kind of grow and other species to thrive in that area and then obviously this put in more species such as the beavers yeah. And, then and I think birds. the bears
0: came back as well because there were more trees and there were more berries and the bears were eating the berries. Mm-hmm. And, and you got um, birds of prey coming back because they this, were feeding this. on the carrion that was left over by it's the bears. It's known wolves. as a
5: trophic cascade, so a cascade of events happened due to these wolves being introduced.
0: Yeah, including, I think I, I, I saw that the actual course of the river changed because of um, because the, the new growth. Meant that the riverbank sides were, were less vulnerable to erosion and the river was more static and it meandered less, so the river changed. So it's extraordinary, isn't it? An introduction of one species um, in a controlled way can have that impact on, on a whole environment. It, Tony, you wanted to come in.
2: Yes, I mean, that's one of the very interesting things about rewilding. Um, in, in Britain, we're generally looking after small nature reserves where we have a clear objective to meet because we don't want to lose things. We need to maintain at least what's there. the excitement about rewilding isn't about delivering an outcome or meeting an objective it's actually what we call emergent properties you get the system working you get the system in place you get the right species in place and things happen you don't necessarily necessarily know what they are things will emerge and sometimes what emerges is far more exciting than what you possibly could have planned for and we're finding that increasingly even with small I mean, Eben Common is on the edge of being a rewilding project at all, but we're still seeing things emerging, things happening. We didn't necessarily manage for these things. Even more so down the road at the Nepper State in the middle of Sussex, where there's a larger rewilding project being done by by Sir Charles Burrell. Um, That's much more about emergent properties. Now, he didn't manage for purple emperor butterflies, but he's got the biggest population in Sussex. He didn't manage for barbastelle bats, but they still appear on his site. He's getting nested red kite, for example. Uh, they, that wasn't planned for. These are all emergent properties. And I think this is the key thing, the key excitement about rewilding is that uh, you get the system working, you get the system in place, and then things happen, exciting things happen.
0: You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Akil Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planetpod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. So what's the essential difference for the layperson between rewilding and just good conservation?
2: Well, I would say they, they would merge and I would be very cautious, actually, about uh, making a sharp distinction between them. I think it's all—it's all, all, a spectrum. I think nature conservation is generally about getting nature working. Uh, when we do have relatively small nature reserves, we have to deliver an objective. Um, We don't want to lose everything that we've got, for example, so you have to start from where you are. But rewilding I think is is this thing about building the system and letting it it run rather than working towards an outcome. They do overlap and I think that's very important. It's not, not either or It's not that one one is wrong and the other is right. It depends on the circumstances.
0: Casey, I just wanted to go back very quickly because you were starting to talk about a piece of law there. Now, obviously, if you said to people, we're planning to reintroduce wolves into Sussex. I'm not sure wolves were actually never native to West Sussex. I'm not sure, perhaps they were. They would quite rightly be an outrage, uh, outcry, and people be very upset and worried that they were going to be, you know, have a wolf on their doorstep. So, so how does the law need to change, and how can we balance the needs of of perhaps those apex predators that we might like to reintroduce into certain areas? And I think the target area is Scotland, isn't it? Yes, Scotland. With the the anxieties of the local population, but also the, the the need to make good law that doesn't leave anybody vulnerable.
5: So as I was saying, like the law was made in 1976 with the Dangerous Wild Animal Act, and part of the law, part of that act actually states that to be able to keep one of the animals listed under the act, they have to be an accommodation that is escape-proof. So the primary aim of the act is public safety, and I think one of the main kind of constraints of the act is if we wanted to release these apex predators, then they would have to be contained somehow so that they couldn't escape, and I think that is kind of de- defeating the object of rewilding. They want the predators to be, able to be able to roam and to be able to predate on these kind of lower species in the food web
0: yeah realistically though i mean that's never going to happen is it and we are not going to be able to introduce a a potentially extremely dangerous predator like a wolf into into an environment that that even though it may be fairly wild is still habited which is it which is scotland is it
3: well i think there are a lot of people saying that it is possible um i uh, Part in a book called Wilderness Protection in Europe. We had experts from from all over Europe um, discussing this at Tilburg University, and the consensus is no, it, it is it is possible to have wolves in most of Europe in the in the right areas now. No, certainly in the, Scandinavia, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, but also Germany, in it, in Italy, you know, Spain, um, and I don't agree that they are really dangerous uh, animals. Um, if you look at Yellowstone, there's not one incident of anybody being killed by by wolf. Big area,
0: Yellowstone. Not quite, perhaps, as inhabited as bits of Scotland.
3: Um, well, not you, sure. you know, if you go right up the northwest, um, maybe it's it's not. Uh, there's possibly I haven't done a population comparison between north of Scotland and, and Yellowstone, but you know, you get a lot of tourists going to Yellowstone, mm. um, and 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 the thinking is, it would should be perfectly possible to have wolves right up in in Scotland. Say, certainly in the north northwest area. But the law is not helping us do that. Um, Katie referred to this Dangerous Wild Animals Act, and you can't possibly have a sort of 30,000 acre estate and put a, a big a big fence around it. I mean, you do have deer fences. The whole point is, is you allow allowing animals to, to roam. So you can't fence them on. So what we do need are laws that are fit for purpose. We need to recognize the importance of rewilding in this country and make our laws fit the ecological realities, which we're not doing at the moment. I mean, we're looking at you know, legislation sort of 40 years old. So we need to really, when we're getting good policies coming in, into right. force now, we're getting the 25-year plans, so we're much more forward-looking than we have possibly ever been. We need to start making uh, the laws fit the policy. So I, I'm hoping that this will happen over the next uh, few years. Yeah,
0: and there's a, a, a very big push from, from UKLA, which is the UK environmental law association yeah. to, to tackle this isn't it exactly. and actually we're, we're delighted that our second program on rewilding is actually coming from <coughs> the wild law conference so i'm sure we'll be talking more about that but i think tony you wanted to come in and i wanted to just catch up with helen yeah, well. just
2: just just very briefly i think about the actual actual risk from wolves now there are various issues about wolves which we have to be addressed but so this this issue about risk the risk of to humans from wolves is vastly overstated we need to look at the other side of the equation there are more deer in the country than ever before in history there are so many deer here that they cause many road accidents. Now, a lot of those road accidents are fatal to the people in the car. So, you're more likely to be killed in a road accident caused by a deer than you ever will be from a wolf attack. And wolves will reduce the the, uh, in the number of deer and the way they behave.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I you know, I think they're beautiful creatures and they're incredible. And I'm, I'm not sure I'd be that distressed if wolves were brought back. But I know that there will be a sense of anxiety amongst the population so part of what we need to do i guess is to educate the population and the, and the general public and and ourselves and, and particularly our young people about the benefits of rewilding and understand the relationship between predators and and perhaps part of the problem has come that we have a very um slightly i don't know simpl- simplistic view of animals we're very you know we, we always look at all the cuddly bunny rabbits and you know people have a very um, emotional attachment to animals and perhaps view animals in a way that isn't necessarily um, appropriate because we anthropomorphize them don't we so so maybe that idea that you can reintroduce um, you know predators across all of the food chain and actually explain to people that you know that animals do feed on other animals but that is actually seen as quite a, a tricky thing to get into the into the system isn't it that's a tricky educational concept i suspect so schools where they're keeping bees perhaps we should try and encourage them to you know perhaps start keeping pigs and then the pigs go off to be slaughtered and so people really understand how the food chain works but but that's something that I think might be some way off but Helen you're coming to it from from a legal perspective as well aren't you because you're a member of, of UKLA so yeah. um, um, do you ha, what hope do you feel there is for for changing the law um
4: I think changing the law does fit in quite a lot of what you're saying really about changing attitudes and education i think rewarding people first and attitudes is is key Um, maybe using tools such as ecosystem services or um animals such as beavers that people are actually they like um so that we can see how it benefits us as well as um, you know nature because people people don't seem to realize always these days how much they rely on natural processes and nature, and now with climate change, we're seeing more and more the effects of, of things not working, and people begin to listen. And I think once you've changed that attitude, then the other things fall into place a bit easier. Um, politicians will listen if the electorate start being part of this discourse and, and wanting wanting these changes to happen. Mm. Um, so Are there areas that's... where
0: beavers have been introduced? Because as you say, beavers seem a lot friendlier. I you, beavers yeah. can be quite destructive, can not they? But but they're not perceived to be destructive yeah. to humans. <laughs>
4: well, they're up in Scotland and um, we've got the De- Devon Beaver Project and there's recently one near Gloucester, I think. Yeah, and there's, there's various sort of enclosed populations around the place as well. There's Ham, Fenn and Kent, which I've been to. And it's brilliant to see what, what they do. The so what's do the benefit
0: to the beavers actually bring?
4: They just pretty much manage the ecosystem for you. They, they'll improve hydrology, they improve biodiversity by creating a whole matrix of habitats for different species. I mean in Yellowstone that's part of what the wolves have done is because the wolves are actually, which are are, a keystone species themselves, they've um, basically helped encourage another keystone species and that's why the effect's been as big as it is i think
0: probably yeah so the so the beavers are helping to keep the rivers rivers healthy and but but i a lot of people would think that beavers are dam builders aren't they you know we've all yeah. seen Lionel rich in wardrobe with mr beaver um they, they build these huge great dams so presumably do, doesn't that just create flooding i mean are they a flooding hazard
2: Yes, it's interesting, that's a good question. The Devon Wildlife Trust is one of the groups who's been very fundamental, I think, in getting beavers uh, reintroduced into, into, into England. And uh, they had a beaver population which sprung up from somewhere, we don't know where. But to make it acceptable, they surrounded this with very, very careful monitoring. So they looked very carefully at what beavers actually do in a real landscape. Uh, and they can plot what happens to the water going in and coming out of the catchment where the beavers are. And they've found enormous amounts of benefits created by beavers in a catchment. They make the landscape much more complex. So as you said earlier, they create a lot of a lot of they do create dams and they do divert small streams, they do make ponds and ditches and so on. The net effect of this is that it slows down water. Now this is what we're trying to do throughout catchments, throughout the lowland Britain, is to slow the water down to reduce flood risk. So beavers do that automatically by slowing the water down they also catch sediment so they reduce sediment build-up. Okay. by doing that they also reduce pollution they also build up other populations of other things which have other effects such as so, otters such as otters yes yeah. if you want otters you can reintroduce beavers and then you get the perfect pot, perfect area for otters so it's a it's a an example of a keystone species a, a, a species that really has a major driving effect in the landscape. So and so beavers have been a real, really interesting success story. When properly monitored, you can see exactly what's happening.
0: Okay. And how how easy are they to reintroduce? I mean, you know, do, do they are they like rabbits? They reproduce very quickly, or does it take yeah. a very long time? Do you have to introduce a pair and then another pair? And are they territorial? I mean, what would be the what would be the process of introducing it's beaver populations? One of the most
2: well-researched mammals in, in Europe. Um, The work has been done through every other country in Europe, and now increasingly we're doing it in Britain as well. So we we know how to do this. Uh, They're they're not the easiest things to introduce, but they're not the most difficult either. Uh, There's a well-known process. There's a well-known process of how you monitor them, how you make sure you minimise their more damaging effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, You actually have strategies for when they end up in the wrong place. So all of this has been done elsewhere. Um, and so there's a, r- a good, well-recognised process of how to reintroduce beavers, and generally speaking, it's successful. So that could be reproduced in this country relatively easily.
0: But there, And there wouldn't be any legal barrier to that, just going back to the conversation we were having just a few moments ago. I mean, there's no laws that would, would make it difficult for us to reintroduce beaver populations.
2: Well, you need to go through a, through a licensing process, and uh, and the government at the moment uh, seems to be welcoming the application of licence for licences.
0: That's fantastic. So... A lot of what we've been talking about has been very positive, but there must be some downsides to rewilding, because there's always a downside to everything, isn't there? I mean, what would be the potential pitfalls or downsides to a rewilding project?
2: The way I see it is that uh, uh, there can be downsides, and quite often when you find a downside it's because you haven't understood something. You're trying to reintroduce a process and you've got it wrong. Um, Rewilding is sometimes mistaken for simple abandonment. Uh, one of the worst problems we have in this country is often neglect of habitats that require some sort of management. Yeah. It means you, we don't understand it properly. Now, originally those those habitats would have been managed by natural processes. And if we leave them alone now and they decline, it means we haven't got the natural processes in place.
0: So things like overgrazing and yeah. to, uh, large populations of deer, big populations yeah. of you know rabbits and foxes and things that actually dis- destroy the landscape.
2: Or, or undergrazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest problems in the southeast at the moment is actually overshadowed dense woodlands. Um, So that's that's possibly one of the drivers for some of the losses of woodland species in the the, the lowlands. So so there's overgrazing, which is massive in the uplands, but there's also possibly undergrazing or the wrong balance of grazing. There's all these things that can have an effect. So if something's going wrong, it means we don't understand something. Uh, We need to do something about it, maybe introduce a different process, or maybe have a proxy for natural processes. And that's where domestic grazing comes in. It's not wild grazing, but if you haven't got wild grazing, and that's a rationale for having domestic raising.
0: Yeah, we were chatting, um, earlier, Jim and I in the car, about, you know, how you where you start, because I suppose we're thinking about rewilding and taking things back to a point where there was a better balance. But, you know, we'd have to go back you know, hundreds of years in some cases, wouldn't we, to say this is what the landscape looked like. So, so, what's your kind of point of entry? Do you yeah. say we just want to rebalance as things were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? How, how do you how do you approach that? I oh, never you?
2: go back. Uh, you can't go back anyway. Uh, be informed by the past. Try to understand how things work by looking at the past, but actually don't think about recreating. So
0: rewilding isn't recreating an, no. an environment. No. It's actually looking at the needs of the environment now yeah. Yeah. and the the challenges that we face, such as climate change, and Absolutely. say what would be best in terms of our ecosystems and the environmental balance yeah. Yeah. To, 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 to put things back onto a level where we're not you know we're not damaging Absolutely.
2: things. Absolutely, I'd expand this out even further. We have a problem, I think, in the way we view nature conservation at the moment of shifting baselines. We think things can only be as good as we thought they were in in what we think of as the past right and uh, now that means that every time you're thinking back to somewhere you're thinking back to somewhere that was already degraded <laughs> and you can gradually get a declining expectation of what you should expect from the environment and i think this is the uh, the excitement of rewilding let's not just think about it how we thought our the let's, let's not just think about the landscape our parents lived in mm. or our grandparents lived in mm. let's think about a landscape that maybe happened in the last interglacial, or maybe it could happen in the next hundred thousand years let's think bigger scale more exciting Mm. more than just kind of making it slightly less bad than it is now a big exciting change
0: so what we've really got to do is is part of this education process is about broadening people's horizons, isn't it i mean an informed and well-resourced debate where we actually get people to talk about things like this hopefully young people in schools but everyone but also to broaden our horizons a bit and to think big and And I should imagine one of the biggest challenges we face with climate change is that we don't think big, we don't think global, we only think local all the time, and sometimes parochially local, um, where we've actually got to take um, a responsibility across the whole planet. And that's that holistic approach to to rebalancing the world that we live in, isn't it? Yeah, Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
0: One of the things we're always trying to do on the pod is say that actually, Purpose of our podcast is it's for everyone who cares about the planet, and this isn't just people who are fortunate enough to live in you know rural, beautiful rural surroundings such as the one we're sitting in now, um, but the majority of us who live in towns and built up areas. What are the opportunities and chances for bringing in some of these rewilding and understanding our environment a little better into an urban environment, Helen?
4: Um, there's a lot of of things going on at the moment, um, innovations in urban landscape, like urban green space projects. Um, lots of people focusing on rain gardens and they call them sponge cities which is a very similar idea to rewilding in that it's looking at putting the functionality back into, you know, like storing water, making sure systems are working properly for people and for nature. Especially What's a sponge with like, city?
0: Is that growing it's, things? Or
4: it's, is that... it's like making sure you store water and
0: also oh, like the city rainwater and,
4: and also I mean as part of that growing food in cities and um, green roofing. There's a lot of really cool work going on at the moment.
0: Yeah, we've had a number of guests on the pod recently who've been talking about rethinking urban spaces and yeah. green walls and cities and rooftop gardens and yeah. and having a new approach to urban planning to allow for for you know the, the natural environment to, to, to be encouraged back yeah. into the cities. And it, it's
4: it's also part of rewilding attitudes, I think, and also looking at it like re- rewilding as an opportunity rather than looking at traditional management where we're like you say picking a, a point in time and trying to keep it that way rewilding on a, on a scale that goes from those nature reserves out to farmland, out to urban areas if you see it as a whole dynamic thing you're creating something that works the way it might have once worked but it's adapted to the, the modern landscape because you, you can't recreate an old landscape when it's full of people and towns and mm,
0: you need and something buildings. that
4: functions that way but isn't, yeah and you come up with surprises as well and you like, like Tony said you 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 do rewilding things and rather than what was in the textbook example of what will happen um, you you find out something else is good for this species or and it, and it doesn't have to be looking at just traditional so doing stuff in your garden doing stuff in the town doing stuff on farms it
0: it all just fits into a whole landscape mm-hmm. view and the thing about cities is that, that a lot of the research that that has been done and we, we certainly had a guest on the pod recently he was talking about this is that There is a very strong link between the urban environment we live in and our mental um, health and our mental well-being. And actually, very often, urban environments are isolating, and that's very poor for mental health. And what we need to do is we need to try and recreate those senses of community in the urban spaces we occupy in order to support people who may be feeling isolated or Um, or or alone or or, or particularly elderly and frail populations but all of us are prone to to loneliness and there is a very strong link isn't there as you were saying earlier Simon between you know rewilding and the natural environment and our own sense of of mental well-being and our health yeah I mean I think that
3: was a a, a point that Katie was making and and it's a very important point because you know we are we're animals and we're designed to be in nature and that's how we operate uh, and if you take us away from green spaces and nature and put us in kind of concrete, concrete rooms and uh, and an environment, you know, we get depressed and our well-being goes down, both our physical and our mental. And there do, there's a lot of work that's now been done to show the the um, these links between mental health, well-being, uh, and and nature. So we need to do much, much more to get people into nature, whether that's out into you know rewilding projects at places like Carrafound that we've talked about at that, that, that the very best or in or just in their you know in their local urban environments as Helen was saying so we have m- more green space and when we when we plan our cities we need proper green space we need it for nature as much as people but the, the two go to, together so it is essential i think now that um, uh, that the, the NHS and Public Health England are starting to appreciate the financial benefits there'll be of this. Now, apparently, for every and this comes from Dr. William Bird, who's one of the, the top um, thinkers in this in this field. He's a GP that's specialised in in uh, in, in um, nature and well being. Um, but for every pound that is spent on what they call social prescribing. That's getting people out into into the outside world, it's getting them to work on allotments, go for walks in the countryside. For every pound you spend on that, you save uh, the NHS nine pounds. I mean, I've talked to a number of GPs, and you know they get into this thing that people get depressed, they, they give them the antidepressants, and they come back week after week, and then it just kind of goes on, and, and nobody really improves, and that can't be a good way of, of treating patients. So we need to be far more imaginative, we need to look at the power of nature, and it will be better for everybody, it'll be better for our mental health, it'll be better for nature and we'll save a lot of money. So it just seems to me, why wouldn't you want to go down that route?
0: Yeah. People place planet, better for us all. Yeah. And actually that's that's a lovely segue into to the next um, part of our podcast today because we are actually going to get out there and have a walk on Eberno Common and we're going to ask Tony to point out some of the things that we hope we're going to see I suspect we probably won't be seeing bats and <laughs> but um, we hopefully we'll be seeing some, some insect life and some bird life um, and uh, now the rain has stopped I think we're going to um, put our wellies on and go for a tramp We've come out to a uh, clearing in the wooded area on Eberneau Common and I'm looking around and I can see some very tall trees and also something rather strange that's a little wooden structure halfway up one of the trees. Tony, what's that?
2: Right, well this, this is an artificial bat box. Uh, Ebenau Common is one of the most important sites in, in Britain for, uh, for bat species. We've got more or less every species it's possible to have in this part of the country uh, in Ebano Common. And one of the really rare species is Barberstil bats. And they like, looking from the clearing into the, into the wood, they like this sort of structure. Very, very dense, um, holly holly undergrowth with birch, beech trees growing out of them, uh, with all sorts of places to roost, all sorts of different structures that, that bats can roost in. But this sort of structure looks like it's permanent, looks like it's always been here, but actually it's a feature of a, very, of a very dynamic habitat. So this, a long, long time ago, a couple of hundred years ago, this would probably have been much more open. And in the future, it may start to degrade. So you've got this moving matrix of trees forming really quite dense groves and then opening out again to a more open habitat. So you've got all those patches working here. And and what's helping helping that, helping drive that, is, is the cattle. Uh, so if you get the cattle and the grazing right, maybe helped with some conservation volunteers as well, because we don't happen to have any mammoths or e- elephants or bison. Uh, so we don't, yet. Get the, yet. we don't get the big kind of disturbance features, but we do get the, the cattle helping to keep that matrix moving. So you, you need a certain level of openness, a certain amount of really quite dense woodland, uh, and everything in between, and that's actually what supports the most diverse bat population.
0: You mentioned volunteers just mm. then. Um, at the Wildlife Trust, you do need volunteers, don't you? Yes. So if people are interested and they live in this part of the world, or wherever you are, actually, there'll be a wildlife trust that you can get involved in, won't there?
2: Absolutely, yes. And we've all got our own um, websites, and that's probably the best way to contact us. Yes, we have about 400 volunteers. This particular site has got a very loyal band of people. Who who do the jobs that are missing where well, we haven't got the all the natural processes? They do try to try to keep the wood moving, that that dynamic process working. So yes, all of our nature reserves have uh, have volunteers, and we have volunteers doing other things as well.
0: Yeah. So if you are interested and you'd want to volunteer, either you know here with Sussex or, or wherever you are in the country, just check out the POD website because we'll put some link details on our site so you can find out your local Wildlife Trust and volunteer because that will be good for you and it'll be good for our planet too. So Tony, our walk now has taken us to a very different part of the common and we're in a much more open area. So what is it we're looking at here?
2: Right, well, we're in one of the glades in Eberneau Common. These used to be much more extensive, threaded all the way through the, through the site. And In fact, it was the disappearance of this sort of feature that was really worrying us uh, quite, quite a few years ago. If we look around, it is it is one of the most diverse areas when it comes to the flora. There's just masses of different plants here. Come here in spring and summer, it's throbbing with insects, so we don't want to use that, lose this. And we look on the floor and we see large old, old anthills. And what's interesting here, you can see the anthills which are features of open grassland and you can go in the surrounding woods and you can see dead anthills so that shows you that this grassland was once much more extensive so this is what stimulated us really quite a long time ago to think about well, how do we keep these features, how do we keep this dynamic so you do keep the dense woodland which the bats like you also keep the open areas which are a huge range of flora and fauna like but you keep it in dynamic matrix. And this is where the idea of, of, of reintroducing grazing, using domestic animals, but as proxies for wild animals, that's that's where that came in. and that, So that's what we're doing at the moment. Now, we haven't got all the natural processes working here. We haven't got the big disturbance causes, which really knock the trees down. So that's what volunteers do. They're pretending to be elephants. So they come in here every now and then and pretend to be a mammoth or pretend to be a bison or an elk or something, and they open up some of the areas even further. But the cattle... Essentially, if it wasn't for the cattle over the last decade, this area would have gone, and with it all the flora and fauna that relies on it.
0: Well that would have been a real loss because it is absolutely beautiful and I'm looking around and you know there's a huge area around me where we've got little shrub trees but we've also got lots and lots of things, thistles and were it not raining we probably would have had flowers Um, and I can see you know blackberries growing and so it's a fabulously rich and inviting space and I can imagine that small mammals and large would would like to, to, to be here.
2: It's the interaction between these open areas and the dense areas that's so important. Because we often forget this. We think of things as being either woodland species or open ground species. Nature doesn't work like that. There are some species which we think of as dense woodland species, like some of the the, uh, the beetles, the wood-boring beetles. We think of them in in old trees. Well, actually, another part of their life cycle, they need nectar sources. Those nectar sources grow in these sorts of areas. So even something we think of as an old growth species requires open habitat as well.
0: Yeah, and that's what we've got here. We've got this the variety of habitat and the opportunity for those species to come out of the woods and do a bit of, of nectar gathering and go back into the woods. So it really is a very spectacular place. So we were just in a glade um, where you'd been talking about how the um, introducing cows had actually kept down the, the vegetation and actually created that open space. And we've walked around the corner and here we have four very beautiful looking cows. Tony, what are they?
2: Well, these are British white cattle. Um, They're, I think, one of our most attractive cows, actually. They're basically pure white, with black ears, black noses and black eyes. So they look very pretty. And they're they're pretty rugged breeds, which is why we chose them. Um, So they're here, they look after themselves, they don't need too much looking after. They've got a fantastic place to live anyway, so they're quite uh, quite privileged cows. We do have what we call in Sussex lookers, that's people who come and look at our cows at least once a day, just to make sure they're okay. But if you imagine we've only got probably about a dozen cows, and there's about... 80 hectares here but the problem first is to find your cow Um, even a bright white a large white cow is difficult to find in this sort of habitat
0: well we're very lucky that we've seen four and i have to say they look very content and calm and really very attractive and we're going to try and get a picture of them up on the website so if you if you don't think cows are your thing you maybe need to come here and have a look at these guys because they are gorgeous Tony, every time we turn a corner we see something new and interesting and we're standing by a hammer pond now and I have to say that was a completely new one on me. But they're called hammers because?
2: Well, yes, it's called a hammer pond because this is an artificial body of water that was made many hundreds of years ago in order to power the hammers or power a mill that powered the hammers in order to work wrought iron. So the wheeled and iron industry was very big at one time. The iron was extracted from the local area. The, uh, the, the woods were used to make the charcoal to smelt the iron. And then these hammer ponds were built to actually wrought the iron, power the hammers, which bang the, the iron in order to purify
0: it. So we're standing in what is now a kind of rural idyll, and it's beautiful and green. But it would have been noisy and possibly quite smelly and a hive of activity.
2: Well, I mean, the the uh, the, the Weald, along with a lot of really well wooded parts of Britain, were actually hotbeds of industry. You know, the industry started in the in the woods of Britain, not not in the coalfields.
0: Oh, there we are. I didn't know that. And um, what's nice about this hamper now is this is a very um, particularly sympathetic environment for bats you, you were saying, and, there's, and obviously they come here to feed, but, but tell us a little bit about your bats because they're quite special.
2: Yes, they're very special here, this is one of the best sites in Britain for bats uh, over the Hammer Pond we see a lot of Daubenton's bats, for example that swoop along the surface picking off insects but the site in particular is very important for Barbastelle bats, and there's a very interesting story there because they roost here in, in Ebeno, so this is their roost site, site where, they, where they rest up during the day, but at night they fly around the rest of the countryside, so although the site is important, it's the whole landscape which has to be in good order to support this population. So we've been working with surrounding landowners in order to build bat flight lines. So just restoring hedgerows or short small belts of trees so the bats can fly out into their forage areas every night. Now that's a nice example of how an ecological network actually works. It's a network for nature. So th- these bats, yes, they require... Uh, important sites but sites alone are not enough you need the whole landscape to work and this is an example of how you can encourage it to work for one species in particular
0: and your local landowners have been supportive and encouraging and, and helped you do that
2: oh it's been fantastic yes i mean uh, all, all the surrounding landowners we've we've met the vast majority and it's a very nice and fairly easy thing to do they're, they're generally sympathetic to wildlife a very easy conversation relatively small things can be done on their land to improve the site for bats with, with very little impact on them so it's a very nice story and uh, we get a lot of support for it so you know praise the local landowners i'd say
0: absolutely and i suppose that what, what we have there is another example of how this is a holistic process you can't just do one thing everything is interconnected and we need support you know from all sorts of different areas and different groups and different um groupings within society to to make these changes happen so thank you for that and we'll just look out at this beautiful pond so on our walk, we've seen an extraordinary variety of, of, of flora and fauna and animals. And we've just seen a beautiful toad that that Tony spotted and picked up. But but obviously we're very lucky because we're out here now in this amazing 80 hectares, as you say, of natural wild um, uh, environment. What about people who are in urban spaces or maybe have a very small garden? What what can we do to to embrace rewilding and improve the kind of environmental balance i mean you were talking earlier about your garden simon what are the sorts of things that people even with a small plot could do
3: well i don't think you need to do very much really just need to leave it and and you say goodbye lawn hello wildlife and and within you know within weeks it suddenly transformed itself and it's suddenly the speed of you know the the lawn's disappeared and now you've got all this tussocky grass so you hear the, the the grasshoppers and the crickets And then you can start looking at the wildflowers that you're getting. Now I've just done it for a year, so I'm just getting a few species, but when we look at the chalk grassland, as you know that's very rich biodiversity, we can get up to forty species per square metre, and I'd love to get up to that in a in, you know, some years. It'd be amazing. You'll get far more variety than you would in just a normal domestic garden, much more exciting.
0: But wouldn't you just become overrun with weeds?
3: Well, one's man's weeds is another person's a man's wildflowers, so, you know, it depends how you look at it, you know, so, I mean, there's some things um, that you, because of the Weeds Act, that you, like ragwort, for example, I had some ragwort, and I took that out because I thought I should, because it could get into the neighbour's property, but apart from things like that, whatever comes in can stay there, subject to um, them being invasive species, and I'll take out an invasive species, but...
0: And even if you don't want to put your land, your lawn over to to just wildflowers, I know because there's some people who do like a lawn, um, and especially I suppose if you've got kids and they want to play, you can still do things in the borders, can't you? You can plant bee attracting plants, and you can plant um, more wildflowers and those sorts of. Um, um, plants that would attract more species
2: Yeah, uh, there's, there's so much you can do I think there's a few general principles, you know, don't be too tidy minded, allow a little bit of messiness and that messiness can be kind of around the edges I mean, a, a, uh, an area of wildflower meadow with a, with a path cut through it is quite nice, so at least it looks managed even if you haven't gone too mad uh, The other ideas to think about is look at what your neighbours are doing, because often you live in a street and there may be people next door who have got similar ideas, um, and you don't have to have everything everywhere uh, you may have a pond and next door's got some shrubs and a bit down the road they've got some trees. So you may na- may think about a nature street as much as a nature garden. Uh, but those principles, you know, don't be too too, don't be too tidy, don't be too, too worried about it. Plant a range of species, a range of nectar sources and just see what happens.
0: I love the idea of a wildflower street, so that's a kind of call to action for community as well as for individuals. And I think it was um, Alan Titchmarsh who said, don't treat your garden like a sock drawer don't keep tidying up so so that's the call so allow rewilding to happen in your plot even if it's very small Um, a huge thank you to my guests today and it's been absolutely fascinating and i'm so pleased that the rain finally stopped and we were able to come out here and enjoy this amazing ebano common so thank you all very much for joining us